Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, obviously, in the last week, we've had the tragedy of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, which has claimed now, I understand, more than 11,000 lives. There's been a lot of focus on it. Uh, you know, obviously, the tremendous loss of life, but also... Uh, the potential for such an earthquake to hit here in Israel. We've had a couple of after tremors that have been felt in Israel, and there's been a lot of talk about what Israel can and should do or how prepared it is for a big earthquake. We're on the same fault line as the earthquake uh, in, I think, southern Turkey. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that and you know some concerning details that the cabinet committee on the preparedness for earthquakes hasn't met since 2015 and still there are hundreds of thousands of homes in Israel that are still not properly earthquake proof um, and also you know there's a certain amount of pride in the fact that Israel again in these situations immediately jumped and offered its, its assistance not just to Turkey but also to Syria obviously Syria is an enemy country um, but we have provided aid, uh, mostly at the request of the Russians. Uh, but in Turkey, we've set up uh, field hospitals already, and they're already on the ground, the IDF and uh, other uh, life-saving NGOs like Katsala and Nagindawid uh, um, Adon, uh, saving lives in Turkey. But really, in Israel, the only issue really that's been on the political landscape and diplomatic landscape to a certain extent over the last not just week but preceding weeks months and will be for the foreseeable future is the whole issue of judicial reform i was speaking uh this week to some of the people who were, uh, if not necessarily behind it certainly early supporters contributed to some of um, the research and were some of the early people who decried what they claim is a lack of transparency or too much power in the hands of unelected uh, members of the Supreme Court who uh, seem to provide themselves powers from the late 90s or the uh, mid 90s onwards that Israel, the, the law did not allow them to have, uh, et cetera, et cetera. These are some of the claims that proponents of the judicial reform have been talking about. But what was most striking uh, from speaking to some of these people in politics and outside politics is they simply were not prepared and were even a little bit surprised by the backlash. You know, many of these people have been talking about the issue of judicial reform, largely in academic and NGO quarters. Every now and again, it was raised during election campaigns, but never really dealt with in any concerted manner. Uh, and as I, I said to them, you know, regardless of what, was or wasn't spoken about elections, the average Israeli has no idea what the current situation is, has no idea what you're proposing. So much of what um, is being stated about these reforms is being widely accepted. The fact that it is being repeated by large parts of the media 
It is the subject of demonstrations, foreign pressure, uh, Jewish organizational leaderships. Now we have uh, heads of unicorn, high-tech companies and other uh, you know, companies that are worth billion dollars in Israel talking about taking their money out because of these judicial reforms. There's barely a day which goes by which there isn't a letter decrying the reform, supporting the judicial system by a group of academics, of uh, jurists, of uh, IDF, former IDF um, soldiers of all sectors of society. And quite simply, the PR battle is being very much won by opponents of the judicial reform. And I think that is where they've been taken back because they've been concentrating very much on the fight in the Knesset, on what they need to do to get it through, um, that really leaving the public sphere largely uh, to uh, the opponents of the judicial reform. And now we are seeing, um, it, not necessarily it's going to cost them, but certainly in the public sphere, um, there isn't tremendous support for the reforms because of the constant attacks, because of the, I, I would even ask the, the branding that this um, judicial reform is considered undemocratic. Again, I'm not giving my opinion here. I'm just saying that, you know, that is the branding by opponents and proponents who claimed in the past, proponents of the judicial reform who claimed that actually the current system is undemocratic because you're legally uh, ele uh, democratically elected representatives can be overruled um, by making laws which they believe is in the uh, interests of the population. Um, so a, a talking point which they'd used many times that the current system is undemocratic undem simply been turned on its head against them and it's left them to a certain extent, many of them bewildered. Regardless of that, um, the fact is that the uh, judicial reforms are gathering a pace, are moving forward, and next week we're likely to see for the first time actual voting, actual legislation. But what has actually happened? Originally, we heard of a, a, a very large judicial reform, which encountered many, many areas which uh, would seek to, let's say, what, what proponents of the law would say is rebalance and shift uh, powers back to the democratically elected um, legislature, executive, and away from the unelected judiciary, which is the most, I mean, there's very little doubt, all jurists, all experts would agree that Israel has one of the most activist Supreme Courts in the world. And whether that's good because Israel doesn't have other checks and balances, it doesn't have a second house, it doesn't have a presidential system, um, that certainly can be argued. But the simple fact is that Israel does have an active, uh, an extremely activist court. It gave itself many powers. Again, I'm not going to get into whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's uh, a debate amongst those who uh, support or oppose the, uh, uh, the reform. But uh, what the tactics that the government, the proponents, the supporters uh, in, in, the, in the government and in the Knesset are now using as they're trying to break it down into smaller pieces. Why is this important? First of all, because um, they believe it will be much harder and unwieldy for a Supreme Court to strike it down. Uh, if, it, if it's in one big blow, it could be that uh, just on the basis of one part, which they feel is uh, problematic or unreasonable or whatever they should use, then the whole thing will be uh, brought down. But if they divide it up into uh, different aspects, then that may be more of a challenge. Also, um, there are some laws that they want to pass further down the line, uh, which they're afraid could be overturned 
by the Supreme Court, but if they start with laws that would hamper the possibility of the Supreme Court from overturning or introducing override uh, clauses, then obviously that is needed up front. Uh, so that is what's happening. At the moment, the first law that's going to be uh, placed um, on the Knesset uh, floor, uh, possibly next week, probably on Wednesday. Originally, there was talk it was going to be on Monday. And uh, protesters led by former minister Moshe Alon, as we know, Bogi Alon uh, was formerly in the Likud, and then he left and uh, joined the National Unity Cult, uh, Party with uh, Lapid originally and uh, Gantz and then broke off. Um, he has been considered a bit of a leader, and he held a press conference and said that we, he wants to shut down the country, wants to have a strike on Monday, which is when the voting will uh, take place, Well, the government, perhaps with that in mind, has now delayed it in until uh, Wednesday. But what is the, the, the main, the opening salvo, uh, salvo in this um, fight, if you want to describe it that way, is going to be the representation on the Judicial Appointments Committee. Now, that is one of the uh, central uh, bones of contention. At the moment, the judicial system itself has a majority on the committee, which means that it can largely replicate itself ideologically, uh, demographically, perhaps, that has been argued. So if you have a left-wing bias, let's say, uh, which, again, is an accusation, I'm not making it, but that is an accusation that, that there is a left-wing bias, amongst uh, uh, justices, well, when they come to uh, decide and vote on their uh, successors, they will obviously side with those who they believe will best represent their ideologies uh, moving forward. Um, but what this new law will do is basically change the maths slightly, but enough to give the government uh, a majority on the judicial appointments. Now, that's important because apparently there are some new appointments uh, coming up in the, the coming months. So it's very important for them to get ahead of that, the government, and pass this law. So when these appointments committees are uh, put together and are voted, they will then have the majority to uh, allow themselves to choose um, you know, members of the Supreme Court that will be more, let's say, amenable to them, more in line ideologically, whatever it is that they see. There has been a little bit of compromise. We, we've talked a lot in the past, although it doesn't seem to be much compromise, but uh, for the first time in law, there will be a member of the opposition uh, on the Judicial Appointments Committee. That's something which been, has been touted by Knesset uh, Constitutional and Law Committee, um, Chairman Simcha Rotman, as a big compromise. Uh, the opposition is saying, well, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's irrelevant because um, it will always be in the minority and the government has given itself a majority. So having one member of the opposition isn't really going to change the maths at all. Um, there's other issues which are going to come up, as I said, the override clause, the issue of reasonableness, that was something that came up very recently in the Supreme Court decision to disbar Arya Derry from uh, serving as a minister. Um, other uh, laws that are coming out, which will, if not bar, certainly limit judicial oversight over certain laws, especially if they are what's called basic laws, that is a big fight and argument. Uh, between the two sides, exactly what status basic clause have, as we've talked about, Israel does not have a constitution, and there has been this concept that basic laws are, have a quasi-constitutional basis. These have actually been overridden by the very 
institution which claims this quasi-constitutional basis, which is the Supreme Court. So what the reformers are trying to do is basically give them a status where they cannot be overridden. But the, the opponents will then argue, well, then you can just put basic law at the beginning of any law you want to pass, and that ensures that the Supreme Court has no power uh, over them, or let's say severely limited power. So that's certainly a bit of a uh, debate. Um, again, to just to go back uh, to, to some of the uh, opponents, there will be uh, quite a lot of demonstrations next week. There is court, there are calls for a, uh, a nationwide demonstration. Interestingly enough, the Histadjurd, the labor union, the, the main um, national labor union in Israel has actually said that uh, they will not be calling for a strike. Um, they said that they only strike over issues of workers' rights, and this is a political issue, and they have decided uh, to keep out of it. It will be an, interesting to see how many people uh, do strike, uh, from what quarters, um, but simply the pressure is ramping up on the government. Uh, another issue which is going to be on the table of the government, especially the Government Committee on Legislation, which is meeting for the first time, interestingly, on Sunday, is a law that is connected to the reform, which will basically disbar the, uh, disbar the judicial system from interfering in ministerial appointments. Now, this is clearly aimed at allowing the government to um, rename Arya Derry as uh, interior minister and health minister, the dual positions that he gave up, uh, he was forced to give up by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was in turn forced to give up by the, uh, uh, to force him to uh, fire Derry according to the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, so that will also be uh, of great interest. And again, uh, what they will need to pass such a thing is to ensure that they can override because if the government does try and pass such a law in through the Knesset, then in the current situation, the Supreme Court could and probably would allow itself to override. So that's why timing is everything. And that's another reason why much of this is broken up because to try and uh, pass all the legislation in one go will mean, as we've seen this week, that the opposition will put filibusters up uh, as they did this week. I think uh, it was delayed by at least 24 hours. Some of the debates in the Knesset Constitutional and Law Committee, uh, and one can imagine a very lengthy reform law involving all of the different processes, all the different issues, could have so many different objections that could go on for days and weeks. And don't forget, after the first reading, which they hope to pass next week, it then has to go back to the committee for many for, for further uh, discussions. And this is where Simcha Rodsman, who's really leading these uh, efforts in that committee, is, claims that that is when the true discussions really should happen. Because what is happening, again, we talked a little bit about this last week, is President Herzog has tried to insert himself into the issue and tried to say, let's hold off on the processes and try and discuss, and let's come to some sort of consensus between the opponents and proponents, trying to find some compromise. There, every now and again, there seems to be elements of compromise, um, but the main people driving this forward, like Yuriv Levin, the Justice Minister, Simcha Rotsman, have basically said either they're not prepared to wait, or the proper place to debate these is in the legislature, which is where 
you know, is, is, the, is the proper place uh, to have these debates. Uh, Year of Levin came out very interestingly, even with a veiled threat to his boss, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who it's clear is under major pressure from the economic uh, aspect, from the uh, di diplomatic aspect, from all sorts of aspects, is under a lot of pressure to delay or kick the can down the road on these reforms, or at least large parts of it, or to compromise. And Yuri Levine has basically said that if it is delayed at all, he will resign his position. So really taking quite a strong stance against any possibility that Prime Minister Netanyahu could be pressured to slow down the process, to agree to President Herzog's proposal to uh, debate the issues, to hold everything off for a few weeks while all sides come and give their suggestions. So really, next week is a crucial week in this whole process. At the moment, uh, the proponents of the law, Levine and Rotman, um, are really moving uh, full steam ahead. And uh, we'll see what happens as far as public pressure uh, mounts, because as I started by saying, there is an element of effectiveness there. There is quite a surprise element there on the uh, side of those supporting the law. that They've been caught unawares by the true backlash against it. Um, so we'll see which side wins out because certainly the first real battle uh, on this very complicated and very controversial, very complex uh, judicial reform uh, begins in the Knesset next week. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first question is from Andy Palak asking, is it possible the reformers will consider a supermajority rule by Knesset that would override the court as a compromise for those who say that they are acting undemocratically? Well, it depends how you define supermajority. There are those who say a supermajority, 61, uh, because a simple majority can be two against zero. If there's only two MKs in the Knesset plenum when a vote comes up, maybe even one, I don't know what the limit is. I have seen votes of as little as six to zero on laws I guess people don't really care about. Um, but what is defined as a supermajority um, could be as little as 61. But I'm assuming that the questioner was talking about maybe having something larger, like a 70 uh, seats or something like that, which is uh, something which those who've put out compromises have, have tried to uh, put out to show that there needs to be a much larger majority, perhaps even members of the opposition coming on board with a particular law. Um, I'd be surprised if there was such a thing, um, because simply it would tie the hands of this government. This government has 64 uh, seats. So to basically propose a judicial reform, which you can only have a super majority to even implement, uh, wouldn't make much sense. Uh, perhaps it would make sense from a position of compromise, from a position of trying to find a golden mean. But as far as what the government wants to do, um, you know, simply anything more than 64 simply wouldn't allow them to do it. So I, I just don't see that happening uh, at this point. Thank you. Uh, Eric does follow up with that. Uh, is anyone talking about having the basic laws requiring a two thirds vote like an amendment in the U.S.? No, again, two thirds, we're talking about, uh, what is that? Let me do my maths. What is that? 80? Uh, now that's even higher than 70, which I basically dismiss. Again, not because it's not a fair suggestion, but it's just unrealistic in this particular political atmosphere and with the aims and goals of those proponents of the 
um, the uh, judicial reform simply wouldn't be able to achieve with anything more than 64. Um, because even, for example, if you, even if you, you put it at 65, that means they would have to always find at least one person who would have to cross the aisle. So you can imagine trying to find 16 uh, members of the opposition to cross the aisle on such major issues, uh, on basic laws. I'm sure that, by the way, I'm sure that there are some issues, like, for example, you know, they had, they had an amendment to basic laws, symbols of the state, a flag, Atikvaz, the official Israeli national anthem. I'm sure you could find a two-thirds majority for something like that. But quite simply, it's not about those kind of laws. Um, the current coalition has quite a legislative agenda. They feel for many years that the Supreme Court has been preventing them from adhering to their voters' wishes. The argument has been that uh, while the right wing may win a majority, and it has won a majority ever since pretty much 2008, with small exceptions, they have not been able to implement their agenda. They have blamed, perhaps disproportionately, that's an argument that can be had, uh, the Supreme Court, who they say are unelected and basically uh, are aggressively you know, uh, antagonistic to much of the ideological agenda of the right. So this is what this is about. It's not necessarily about being fair and playing nice. At this point, it's about making sure that they believe that they can pass the laws that they believe uh, their voters elected them to do. Thank you. And Don Staple wants to ask directly about the Supreme Court here. Uh, could you please comment regarding the lack of need for standing as in America to bring a matter before the Supreme Court in Israel? Uh, and does the court really decide about 10,000 cases a year? Um, anything that asks me to compare the situation in America, I'm going to have to defer to far greater people who are far more knowledgeable. I'm not tremendously knowledgeable on the American judicial system, so I will not wade into a comparison. Um, but yes, Israel, as I said, Israel has what's recognized as the most activist uh, court system, and it allows anyone to petition over any uh, issue, whether it's a law passed by the Knesset, it doesn't have to directly affect them. In most other countries, and to the best of my knowledge, again, maybe I'm wrong, but to the best of my knowledge in America, you have to show that you are directly affected by the law to be able to bring uh, and to have standing before the court. That is not the case in Israel. Any person, and that's why there are many NGOs who are extremely activist in their own sense, and anything that they don't like, they're going to petition the court. By the way, the right-wing uh, NGOs do it as well. Um, they will petition over every law, pretty much, or anything uh, that the government does that they disagree with, and there's no real question of standing because um, for 20, 30 years now, it has been standard practice and accepted at the Supreme Court that any Israeli citizen has the right of standing uh, pretty much over uh, any issue. Uh, the numbers, um, I'm not 100% sure, so I don't want to comment. But again, I, I, I did see the net numbers a few weeks back and comparing them with the US and other uh, similar democracies, they are many, 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 many times uh, the numbers of, of cases seen as, as in places like the US. Thank you. Don Sable also follows up with that. Uh, do they go to a lower court first or can they just go straight to the Supreme Court? Good question. I'm going to have to check up on that. I, th I, I think sometimes, again, th these are really technical 
issues which I'm not really um, expert in. Um, but I think especially when there are issues which are time bound, I think they can go straight to the Supreme Court because if they feel there's an issue of timing, then, you know, to go through all the lower courts, I think would be a lengthy process. Um, sorry, I, I'm not 100% sure. I, I, I'd like to check up on that. Absolutely. Thank you. David Levine asks, regarding Israel's response to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, uh, there's been virtually no mainstream media coverage of Israel's personnel in Turkey and Syria strongly denies that Israel is offering assistance. Can you comment on Israel's missed opportunities for positive publicity? Well, I mean, uh, it's an interesting issue. It, Israel is certainly not the only country which is helping in Turkey. So, you know, one could argue why would anyone single out Israel? I mean, to go to Turkey, it's a friendly country, or at least, you know, we have diplomatic relations and our relations have definitely thawed over the last year. Um, so it's not, uh, you know, Israel is not necessarily unique in helping uh, Turkey. Obviously, our relations have been a little bit more challenging over the last decade, perhaps even a little bit more. Um, but again, the story that Israel is unique, we're not the only ones on the ground. Even I saw a picture earlier of uh, the Israel, the plane which brought uh, the IDF to uh, from Israel to Turkey, right next to a plane which brought a similar uh, delegation, I don't know the size, from Iran. So again, you know, if the Iranians are there, Europeans are there, I'm pretty sure the Americans, if they're not there already, I'm sure they will be very soon. I don't know about the uh, comparisons and the size of the delegations. Israel has a lot of expertise in this area. My brother-in-law is one of those who's actually there at the moment. Um, so I've been following this obviously very closely. Um, and as far as what it's doing for Syria, Israel has offered and apparently has been asked by the Russians, not directly by the Syrians, because obviously we don't have direct relations, uh, but we have been asked by the Russians to send aid. There, have been, there hasn't been a delegation, and I doubt there will be a delegation of actual Israelis who will cross the border into Syria, but as far as aid and assistance, uh, uh, that, that is something that has been asked, and to the best of my knowledge, has either been done or, or will be done. Thank you so much. And you started off this uh, talk by discussing Israel's preparedness. Uh, Ken Miller asks, Israel being on the fall of the Great Rift Valley has had major earthquakes previously in its history, which caused major destruction. Uh, are the desalinization plants in the Dimona reactor earthquake proofed in their construction as Israel is quite dependent on these structures for electricity and fresh water? Again, this is this is pretty much outside my expertise. My bottom line would be, I hope so. Um, you know, to give it a wider sense, anything that was built after 1980 has uh, been built a little bit earthquake proof. I don't know exactly what that means. I've read stuff about it. It's construction language, which I don't understand. But apparently, if something was built after 1980s, they did have to take certain requirements, which are supposed to make them safer. Uh, against uh, against earthquakes, but as I said, there are 100,000 buildings, if not more, which were built before, which apparently were not uh, given the you know given those requirements. Um, there there has been an effort uh, for a number of years to try and reinforce many of these buildings, but apparently they were largely in in the in the large cities. They tried to make it interesting for investors by not just reinforcing the buildings, but adding a couple of floors 
uh, and then it becomes more of a business opportunity as well. But because of that, um, apparently this has been largely done in places like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, where there is an interest and there is uh, a demand for greater housing. One can imagine that there isn't the same demand for increased housing in some of the smaller towns and cities around the country, especially in the periphery. So apparently many of those cities, like in Tiberias, in Svart, uh, and other places, because uh, there hasn't been as much demand and because of the market influences, um, this, these projects have not uh, come into play and have not uh, seen the requisite uh, reinforcements. Uh, so apparently these are the um, these are the towns which are most you know most being talked about and and, and perhaps at this point because of the attention um, from what's happening in Turkey and Syria, uh, perhaps the government will move towards reinforcing many of these areas. But I would assume that major Israeli infrastructure like the desalination plant and and other uh, plants that were mentioned, I'm assuming that. Again, that's my assumption that they they are earthquake proof to a certain extent. I don't know if you can be completely earthquake proof. I don't understand these issues well enough, but I, I'm assuming that they, especially desalination plants, which were built in the last few years, my assumption is that they were built with the requisite safeguards that could protect them against a certain element of earthquakes. Certainly hope so. All right. And uh, the last question for today, Adam Perry asks, where does the new government currently stand on the Ukraine war? Um, well, it hasn't really come out with any new policies. You won't find the government or any government come and say, we're now taking this position. Uh, Netanyahu, as, as we've spoken about before, uh, you know, used to value very much his relationship with Vladimir Putin, as did many other leaders around the world. Um, there has already been uh, talks with uh, Putin and uh, Eli Cohen, the foreign minister, is uh, scheduled to go to Ukraine um, in the coming, I think, days or, or weeks. Um, Ukrainians have made a serious demands to make that visit what they would say as effective as possible. Some of them will simply not be met uh, because of the tenuous position that Israel finds itself vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Uh, in the region, I talked more, uh, before about um, the aid and assistance asked by Russia, and there's a reason why Russia asked for it, because Russia pretty much are in control uh, in Syria. Um, so perhaps that will help ease the tensions with Russia a little bit. Uh, but Israel, since the beginning of this conflict, has very much had to walk that tightrope. Uh, it's tried to, and it still is, giving Ukraine as a country and the people as much aid as possible. Um, there have been instances of Israel condemning and even siding against Russia at the UN, um, but to really you know, break off relations or to give uh, the Ukrainians any serious military capability as the vast majority of nations, 99% of nations have not given in the whole world, including within the EU and the US, you know, it's unlikely that Israel will suddenly become, you know, the biggest military supplier to the Ukraine, to put it mildly. So I don't think um, too much has changed, especially not publicly. Behind the scenes, Israel is trying to keep in Russia's good books as much as possible, while still taking the moral position in favor of Ukraine, uh, delivering what it can to Ukraine, uh, condemning where necessary, siding uh, against Russia where necessary but it will always be to a certain extent because of Russia's involvement in Syria, in Iran, 
and elsewhere, which simply are, are major, major challenges for Israel, which simply cannot be ignored. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Tariq Fatah discussing Canada's foolish experiment with anti-Islamophobia. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.